Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 438th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Eric Klein, professor of classics, history, and anthropology, and former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and the current director of the Capitol Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. And we're going to be talking about 1170. 77 BCE, the year civilization collapsed. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. So the first segment of the show is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is really just to give listeners a little bit of background. So start us off with some basic information on what the Bronze Age looked like prior to 1177. Okay, so the Bronze Age in the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean regions, which is what we're, we're talking about, basically in modern terms, from Greece over to Iran or Iraq and from Turkey down to Egypt, that's, um, that's the modern era that we're speaking about. In the Bronze Age, um, it's already been ongoing since about 3000 BCE, that's the early Bronze Age. The portion that I'm interested in and that we'll be talking about today is the Late Bronze Age, starting from about 1700 BC and going down to 1200 BC or a decade or two after that. And this is uh, it's a very internationalized uh, era for its time, uh, almost globalized, you might say. There are seven or eight major powers that are all interacting with each other, and they are... Uh, in, in diplomatic contact, they're in commercial contact, they are trading raw materials, finished goods, uh, and um, I think many people would actually be surprised at how many parallels there are to us today. There are very much similarities um, to, to what we do today. So uh, think of us, but 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Okay. Is this a contentious time frame? Is it like the modern where we have sort of camps that are, are uh, clashing with each other and, and jostling for position and power? Or is this a pretty stable system where not a whole lot of, of, um, of uh, controversy or, or stress is taking place? I would say it's more of the former, and, and in that it's quite similar to us today, that there is jostling for power, um, and, and we have situations where the same two powers are both uh, in, in peaceful commercial diplomatic contact and then all of a sudden are warlike, and then things go back to peaceful again. So um, there is uh, a series of sharp elbows, flying as to who is the dominant power, but basically the Egyptians uh, in Egypt and with their empire going up into Canaan, um, which would be like modern Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and the Hittites up in ancient Anatolia, modern, An modern Turkey, coming down into what is now northern Syria. Those two, Egypt and the Hittites, are pretty much the dominant powers, but you've also got the either kingdoms uh, or whatever you want to call them in Cyprus, 
uh, and in um, Assyria and in Babylon, and then also the Mycenaeans and the Minoans over in the Aegean, right? Think Agamemnon, think Canossos, think Mycenae. And they are all interacting on a variety of scales, both at the highest diplomatic and at the lowest commercial. So, uh, again, very much like today. Uh, And uh, like I say, they will veer back and forth from peaceful diplomatic commercial contacts to being at war. I mean, the Hittites and the Egyptians famously fought the Battle of Kadesh in about 1279 BCE for control and possession of what is today modern Syria. And then a couple of decades later, they signed a peace treaty, uh, and uh, there's a couple of marriages to cement the alliance. So again, um, you know, not so different from today, back and forth. I would not call it a particularly peaceful era. None of them are. But it is a very prosperous era. Uh, That is kind of the golden age in some ways uh, of that region in terms of the period between 3000 and 1000 BCE. The Late Bronze Age is the, the high point of the commercial, diplomatic, and other exchanges. Okay, um, I'm going to ask one more question in this segment just to sort of get things sorted out, and that is, um, we, I, I know from your article that we're going to be spending some time talking about the Sea Peoples, uh, but who those folks are has always been, at least in my experience, a little bit of a, of a nebulous um, sort of uh, of group. Who are the Sea People, and, and where did they sort of originate from? So, excellent question, and it is still very, very nebulous. Uh, to start with, these are the groups that are involved in the end of the Late Bronze Age, uh, w- especially when I was studying as an undergraduate undergraduate study. I was simply told that the destructions at the end of the Late Bronze Age in the years following 1200 BCE were caused by the Sea Peoples. Um, I was told that, and we still think that, to a partial degree, because the Egyptians, specifically Pharaoh Merneptah and um, Ramses III, about 30 years apart, they talk about foreign groups invading. They come in about 1207 BCE, and then again 30 years later in 1177 BCE. And what the Egyptians do, they record this in the inscriptions, they record this on the walls. For instance, Ramses III's mortuary temple um, uh, has a pictures as well as inscriptions. And they name the groups. Now, they don't call them Sea Peoples. That's our modern name. It actually comes originally from some French Egyptologists. Um, what the ancient Egyptians did was they gave us the names of the specific groups. So the Peleset, the Equesh, the Denyan, the Shardana, the Shekelesh, the Teresh. There's like nine of these groups that they say uh, combined invaded Egypt twice. And both times the Egyptians beat them. They do not come a third time. But so that's where our information comes from. And it's extremely relevant because, uh, for example, we are told in the Egyptian records, and again, this is if we can believe them uh, at face value, they say that these invading groups, while en route to invading Egypt, they overran other areas. So uh, in modern terms, it looks like they overran 
um, uh, Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. It looks like they overran Cyprus. It looks like they overran northern Syria. And so uh, that is where, I wouldn't particularly call it a myth, but that is where the tradition of the Sea Peoples having caused the collapse of the end of the Late Bronze Age came from. Uh, as we'll probably talk about, I would tweak that scenario a bit. The Sea Peoples were part of the problem, but they are not single-handedly responsible for the collapse. They are simply one of the stressors uh, that all of the societies or civilizations were experiencing at that time. And in fact, the Sea Peoples might have been a symptom rather than the actual problem. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue for the next segment. So please stick around and we'll see if we can sort out some answers. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Eric Klein, Professor of Classics, History, and Anthropology, former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and current director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. And we're talking about 1177 BCE, the year civilization collapsed. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jay. Uh Eric, uh, we had uh, previous earlier in our season, we had uh, Dr. Andreen Mayer uh, on who talked with us about uh, the Amazons, particularly the uh, uh, focus was women warriors, but she also talked about the far-ranging tribes, if you will, uh, from the steppes north of uh, Anatolia. any has there been any connection made by you or any researcher that maybe these sea people uh, may have come uh, uh, out of the north, out of the steppes of, of Russia and uh, the interior north of uh, Turkey? That's a fair question, and in fact, in a lot of um, uh, you know archaeology and ancient studies, when we don't know where groups come from, we say, oh, they came from the north, or oh, they came out of the desert. In this particular case, the answer would be no. I do not think any of our sea peoples are coming from the north or from the steppes, though the origins of them all have not yet been ascertained, to be fair. What we do think uh, is that most of them are coming from the western Mediterranean and moving towards the east. 
that in fact is backwards of what the earliest uh, Egyptologists thought. They thought the Sea Peoples originated in the Eastern Mediterranean and went west, but now we've kind of flipped that scenario on its head. Um, and what we're doing basically is a combination of linguistic games, but also of archaeology and of material culture. So from from the viewpoint of philology and linguistic games, we take the the names that the Egyptians have left to us. So Shardana, for example, or the Shurden, as they're alternately called, that looks a lot like Sardinia, right? The the consonants are basically the same. Similarly, the Shekelesh, it looks a lot like Sicily. So people have suggested that that's maybe where those two groups are coming from, Sicily and Sardinia. Others are a little bit more difficult. The Teresh, possibly related to ancient Troy, um, maybe related to like the Etruscans or something. Uh, the Weshesh, similar, kind of shadowy, but the ancient name for Troy was Willusa, so the Weshesh could be from there. Um, but again, it's all, you know, they may be false friends, as, as they say. When I was learning French, they were talking about faux amis, and uh, they don't, are not actually related. But could the Equus be Homer's Achaeans? Maybe. Could the Denian, could, could they be Homer's Danaans? Maybe. The only one that we know for sure, or at least we think we know, are the Peleset. And the Peleset have always been identified as the Philistines, whom we know from the Bible. Uh, and yeah. indeed, Champollion, the, the decipher of hieroglyphics, Champollion had already said he thought the, the Peleset were the Philistines. So um, in that particular case, though, we also have material culture, and that is uh, Philistine pottery and such found in what is today Israel. looks very much like Mycenaean pottery coming from mainland Greece, but made with local clay. And so again, I'm of the school that says that these sea peoples are coming from the western Mediterranean, heading towards the eastern Mediterranean, overrunning the Aegean, overrunning Anatolia, and all of that before they wind up attacking Egypt, only to finally lose. So um, I don't think we can pull the steps into there, but we can get as far west as, as Italy, Sicily, and Sardinia. But then, of course, you've got the, the other question of if they are moving, if they are migrating, what started them? And there does seem to be evidence now that there was a drought over in the Western Mediterranean. But in that case, if that's why they were moving, they were in for a surprise and a shock because there's now also evidence that there was a major drought going on in the Eastern Mediterranean at the same time. So what's the old saying uh, from the frying pan into the fire? That's basically what would have been happening to them. All right, Ed. Yeah, um, Eric, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the term sea people is rather nebulous, um, and you've mentioned several areas that they overran on their way from west to east. Um, is sea peoples a little a bit of a misnomer? Because it occurs to me, if you're going to overrun these places, can you do it with just by sea, or don't you need an army? It looks like they may have had both. Um, certainly the Egyptians, when they're recording uh, their fights against the, the Sea Peoples, as it were, um, Ramses III says he fights both a land battle and a, a naval battle, and he depicts the naval battle in particular. 
So yes, I would say that you would need a land army and and uh, you know a maritime force. Though I suppose you could transport your your fighting men on the ships, but yeah, in the end you you would kind of need both. But one of the reasons why they're known as the Sea Peoples is because the Egyptians actually say that these are people uh, coming from their islands, uh, and actually, ironically, based you know from what I said earlier, they actually say northerners coming from all lands. And so, like I said, when we don't know where people come from, we say it's from the north. Well, you know everything for Egypt is to the north, basically, <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of the map, if you look at that. So that's where the the, the, the Noman um, Sea Peoples comes from, is because they say the so-and-so in their islands were defeated. So, But yes, you would need a land force and a naval force, I would argue, if you're going to be successful. And indeed, it looks like and again, we have a problem now where we can see that sites are destroyed. We know we know a lot of sites are destroyed at about this time period, at around 1200 BCE. But were they actually destroyed by the Sea Peoples, or were they destroyed by somebody else, or were they destroyed like by Mother Nature, like an earthquake? Um, it's not always clear. I do think it's a combination of all of the above. But um, one of the questions then we ask is, if you did have a land force of the Sea Peoples, how far inland would they have been? You know, could a site like Hattusa, the capital city of the Hittites, which is way up in the central Anatolian plateau, would that have been too far inland for the Sea Peoples? Was it somebody else, like the neighboring Kashka, that destroyed them? And I actually think in that case, it is this uh, age-old enemy, the Kashka of the Hittites, that do destroy the capital city. So, um, uh, like I say, when I was first being taught about this, they, we were saying the Sea Peoples did it all. I actually now conclude in my book that they're kind of the bogeyman of the ancient world, and that we were too facile, too ready to attribute any destruction to the Sea Peoples. I think it's actually much more nuanced. And yes, some of the cities, like maybe Ugarit, were destroyed by the Sea Peoples, but not all of them. And then we've got your question, would they have done it um, because they're marching across the land, or would they have been sailing, landing, and then pillaging? And uh, again, the answer is we don't know, but I would say some combination of all of the above. All right, um, Eric, my question is, you, you hinted in our first segment that there may have been uh, other things afoot before the Sea People show up. Can you talk to us a little bit about what other kinds of stressors were happening here in the late Bronze Age? Sure, and I would say in terms of what kind of other stressors were there, what ones weren't there, oh my word, we have now scientific evidence, it's proxy data, for a mega drought, uh, and by mega I mean a drought lasting between 150 and 300 years in much of the eastern Mediterranean, as well as the Aegean, as well uh, as like Italy in the western Mediterranean. In fact, it's stretching as far east now uh, in terms of modern day as, as Iran. Um, there, these are studies done of the ancient climate by looking at ancient pollen. We can see there was a drought affecting that area. Um, we also know from written records, from uh, archival texts found at the site of 
Ugarits and others found, for instance, at the capital city Hattusa of the Hittites that I just mentioned. And they say in writing, we are starving. There is famine. Uh, if you do not send relief soon, we will all be dead. Uh, do you not know it? Do you not know it? So there's evidence for drought. There is evidence for famine. There is some evidence, still kind of circumstantial, for disease, for, for pandemic or epidemic. Uh, we know that there was a disease that ravaged the Hittite royal family 150 years earlier. I mean, that's a long time. That's like talking about 1918 flu in comparison to today's COVID. But still, evidence that there was disease rampant in the ancient world. We also know, for example, that one of the um, pharaohs named Ramses, I think it was the fifth, died in about 1140, just either after or during centuries of the collapse. It looks like he suffered from smallpox. So you've got drought, famine, disease. You've obviously then got the invaders that we're talking about as well. And we have evidence that Mother Nature is involved, namely the earthquakes that I mentioned previously. So... I would say that uh, one of those calamities is not enough to collapse any one civilization. I mean, we have these all the time today. There'll be an earthquake, there'll be you know, a pandemic, there'll be uh, invaders, there'll be a drought, and lots of people die, but it's not enough to take your entire society down forever. So, but what if you have two of them, or three of them, or four of them at once? And I think that's what happens. You have a perfect storm of, uh, as my kids would have said, a series of unfortunate events <laughs> right. that all happened at the same time. And basically, resistance was futile. Everybody went down. They're like, enough, enough. So I think, you know, they could have survived one, they could have survived two, but you've got three or four of these stressors. There's no way. And mm. then you get, you've got both a, a domino effect, where when one society goes down, the others are affected. So, for instance, Cyprus is producing most of the raw copper. If Cyprus goes down and the others can't get the copper, then they can't get uh, they can't make bronze. Or if the trade routes to Afghanistan are cut and they can't get tin anymore, then again you can't make bronze. So I think when Cyprus went down, it might have affected others. When the Mycenaeans went down, it affected others. When the Hittites went down, it affected others. And you get this systems collapse. So um, you've also got a, a multiplier effect where if you've got two or three or four of these, the effect of one of them is multiplied beyond what it would have been. And so uh, I think there were, what is that, four, five, six different stressors, any one of which on its own wasn't, was not enough to bring down one society, let alone eight of them. But when you've got them all on top of each other or in rapid succession, such that you can't recover from one before the next one hits, then you're going to get the systems collapse and the whole thing goes down in flames. It may take a couple decades. It may even take up to a century. But in the end, life as they knew it in the late Bronze Age, as they had enjoyed it for three, four, five hundred years, comes to an end and you have to uh, you have to be resilient. You have to transform and either make it into the Iron Age or not. And that's where I think this is extremely relevant to today because we're seeing a lot of these same factors around today. And the question is, are we going to make it through or are we going to collapse 
like they did in the late Bronze Age. So I do think we need to learn from history and learn from their mistakes. But we also have to determine how resilient are we going to be. And are we going to be like the Mycenaeans and the Hittites who essentially disappeared? Or are we going to be like the Cypriots and the Assyrians who were able to transform and survive? Or are we even going to flourish in a time of chaos like the Phoenicians? The Phoenicians are the surviving Canaanites who come out of what is today Lebanon. They take advantage of the chaos and they flourish in the, in the Iron Age. So I really do think that this is not just um, studying ancient history. It is very relevant to today in terms of whether we're going to repeat what are basically the mistakes uh, of our predecessors or if we're going to learn from them and be able to carry on. Because remember, every society in history up until now has collapsed and disappeared at some point. And it would be hubristic to think that we today are not ever going to collapse. We are. It's not a matter of if, but when. And so I really do think that we need to look around uh, at what we're going through today with the supply chain shortages and the pandemic and the climate change and everything and realize that something similar was going on a little more than 3,000 years ago, and they collapsed. So is the same fate waiting for us or are we going to be smart enough to avoid it? Okay, uh, Rick, I'm going to let you ask the last question of the segment. I don't want to ask any question because I think he just gave <laughs> your your relevancy. Yes, and yeah, no it, problem with that. Yeah, I'm I'm going to defer back to you to uh, go to your closing, Jay. Well, I, I am going to ask one more short question then. Um, you mentioned that the Phoenicians are, are one of the winners. They come out of this thing and and become more of a, of a force or power. Um, so what I'm wondering about is the, the sea peoples themselves. Do we have any archaeological evidence of what happened with these folks? Did they settle in these lands that they had attempted to invade? Were they driven out and, and sort of wiped out? as as a as a people um we have about three maybe four minutes left um eric so what what happens to these folks at the at the end of the game here oh excellent question i'll try and condense my my <laughs> my hour-long lecture into right. three or four minutes <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh the the simple actually i can condense it into 10 seconds we don't know <laughs> we actually don't know what happened to them. Um, but I, let, me, let me expand on that a little bit. It used to be thought that after they were defeated by the Egyptians, that they went from the eastern Mediterranean to the western, and that what we see in Sicily and Sardinia, for example, are the surviving Shekelesh and Shardana, the, the refugees that went west and that they gave their name to those areas. Now, of course, as I said, we've reversed the scenario. We think they come from those regions and make their way to the eastern Mediterranean. One of the reasons why I believe in the west to east is because of what Ramses III says. In an inscription that's a couple years after the battle, um, he records the battle uh, in 1177, and about five years later, in about 1172 or so, he says, um, 
by the way, when I beat the Sea Peoples, I settled them in strongholds bound in my name. And people have interpreted that as meaning that he settled the prisoners of war, essentially, in Egypt, but also in Canaan, in the southern Levant, basically uh, uh, Israel today and um, southern Lebanon. That would be that region, south of Kadesh. And there is uh, some evidence that there are remnants of Sea Peoples that settle in that region. For example, uh, Tel Dor, which is a site now in northern Israel, there is uh, some evidence that uh, some of the remnants of the Sea Peoples uh, live there after their defeat. Um, There are some ancient texts, like the Tale of Winamun, that talk about um, going up to towns in that area and saying that it's a it's a sickle town or a tajekar town, uh, and these are are part of the groups of the Sea Peoples. So I tend to think that they settle down uh, in what we would call modern Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt, uh, and that that's where they get kind of assimilated into the local population. Uh, So, for instance, if we take the Philistines just for a moment, they would be in this group because they would be the Peleset. And, of course, we have uh, what the Bible calls the Philistine Pentapolis, the five cities, uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, uh, and so on. There's five cities. At Ashkelon, Recently, there's been excavations of the Philistine levels. They found Philistine pottery and everything else. They can definitely say there are Philistines there. Uh, And in among that, in those levels, they were excavating a couple of houses that date to like the late 12th century B.C., early 11th century. So maybe up to a, a, a century after the Sea Peoples invade. And they found the bodies of four infants. And when they did the DNA analysis, which was published in the summer of 2019, they found that those little kids who would have been probably the grandkids of the original Sea Peoples, they found they had mixed parentage. The genetic material was about a third to a half local Canaanite, but the other half or more was foreign. Uh, And when they ran the computer models, they said it matched best uh, Crete or Sardinia or even uh, Spain. And so the idea would be that the the Sea Peoples were settled in southern Canaan, in like Ashkelon, and uh, quickly intermarried and otherwise assimilated with the Canaanites so that the grandkids are of mixed parentage, if you will. Okay, so Eric, we're going to... I gonna... to think that that's where they ended up. All right, we're going to have to cut off there. Um, people have to join the podcast to get the rest of that. Uh, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA San Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 438th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Eric Klein, professor of classics, history, and anthropology, former chair of the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, and current director of the Capital Archaeological Institute at George Washington University. And we have been talking about 1177 BCE, the year that civilization collapsed. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.